on a hill too far away. And the title comes from that song that we don't really sing much anymore, but we used to sing. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. And uh, the idea of the title was you get a little too far away from that sometimes while still believing in divine forgiveness, but not quite sure how it all works. And that's particularly relevant to tonight's, tonight's study. Jesus died on the cross to cancel the demands of the law, to take away our condemnation, and to give us a clear conscience before God. And I have three texts that we're going to be uh, looking at. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, and then Romans 8, 33 and 34, and then Hebrews 9, 13, 14 and 15. First, the Colossians text, Paul writes... And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, Gentiles outside the covenant, the Jewish covenant, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And that's the part, I think, we we understand. We know that Jesus Death on the cross is tied in with our being forgiven. So God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. 14 starts with the word by. So the by refers back to our being forgiven. Forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he do it? Did he say, it's okay, don't worry about it. I forgive you. You will be surprised. The number of songs that we sing in all sorts of services that praise the love of God that reaches us without ever telling us how it gets here through the cross of Jesus Christ. So God just being generally loving saves no one. God's love reaching me in Jesus Christ is how God's love saves and forgives having forgiven us all our trespasses by, and then he says, and I would have said by shedding his blood on the cross. And strangely, he says, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside... That's the legal record that stood against me. Somehow, Paul says, he took it and nailed not just the hands of Jesus. You've seen that in movies. We love to get the gory details, the blood, the nails, and all of that. And and, and yet, Paul says, what was nailed to the cross wasn't just somehow the body of Jesus, but this record that stood against us. Get a picture of that. Get a picture. Did you do anything bad this past week? You did, even if you don't think you did. Was there 30 seconds in the past week where you didn't consciously love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Because that happens to be the greatest commandment of all. So picture, picture a list of everything you've done. Picture a list of every unkind thing you've said, every half-truth, every lie, every loss of temper. 
every sin you ever committed, get a picture of a book. And then somehow get a picture of this nail being driven not just through the hand of Jesus, but through this record. It's got your name on it. Mine says Don Horbin. And it's, it's fastened to that cross. God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's a fascinating text to me. That wasn't the sermon, by the way. That's just reading the opening text. Romans 8, 33, 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. I talked Easter Sunday about being raised for our justification. Christ Jesus, Christ is not his first name, by the way. Jesus Christ is not his last name. Jesus Christ isn't a title. Jesus Christ is a sentence. Jesus Christ means Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. First one, Colossians, the legal demands of the law. Second ones. Second one, Roman 8, 33, 34, the condemnation that we feel in our own hearts sometimes. I want to talk about a clear conscience. Hebrews 9, 13, 14, and 15. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, you can read about that in the Old Testament, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more, that's the, that's the key part, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. That's the important part. He offered himself without blemish. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? Dead works is not the same as sinful works. I want to talk about that in a minute. Purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So the title of tonight's teaching, it's a long title, because it contains the three points that we're going to look at fairly quickly tonight. The three components of divine forgiveness. When we talk about Jesus died on the cross and I'm forgiven, that's, that's true. It's not untrue, but it's almost too general to, to really savor the magnificence of all that was accomplished there. The things that make the cross work in its forgiving power on my behalf. It's vitally important to know these things. And I want to just, I want to just take a minute to explain why it's important to know these things. I'm sure you don't have to understand all these things in order to be saved. Praise God. Uh, you don't have to be a theologian to experience God's grace. 
Uh, you can get to heaven without being able to write a paper on these three truths that we're going to study tonight. No doubt about it. But you won't savor as much as you should the glory of redemption without understanding these things. And that matters. That matters because you will almost certainly be more vulnerable to several things. Temptation, more vulnerable to doubt, more vulnerable to what I want to call spiritual depression as opposed to clinical depression. But spiritual depression, you'll be more vulnerable to all those things if you don't understand these three truths tonight. We know Jesus said people were vulnerable to having the truth of the word snatched away in terms, in terms of its life in their hearts when they didn't take the time or make the effort to understand the word fully. He said that in Matthew 13, 19. Jesus said, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Understanding matters. It matters for everybody. Not just teachers and pastors and theologians. It matters for everybody. It's amazing how many Christians, especially on, on some of the more uh, extreme edges of, of the charismatic movement, it's amazing how many don't understand the mind and understanding as an instrument of spiritual warfare. They learn every other trick available from a thousand experts and books about spiritual warfare and the right words to say and the right tone for saying them and, and all of those things and never take the time simply to discipline themselves in, in a sound doctrinal understanding of the faith. And if you want to resist the devil, believe me, if you want to learn to resist the devil, learn, learn again, Ponder, read, study, study again. Look around this room. I think most of us know that the cross, in general terms, is a very good thing for us. We know we're forgiven through the cross of Christ. And, and somehow it just happens. Jesus died, and, and I'm forgiven. Jesus died, and I'm off the hook. But, but how does the cross work? What would you say to someone who just buttonholed you in the mall somewhere and said, I know you're a Christian, and I know that the cross of Jesus Christ is very important to you. I see you wear it around your neck, and I know you sing on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, but it was 2,000 years ago. Can you explain to me how I get forgiveness through the cross of Jesus Christ? I know you say I do. I'm not asking that. I'm saying, how, how can that possibly be? What makes the cross of Christ effective? And in essence, that's what gave birth to this whole series. We'll look at 27 different things accomplished on our behalf by the cross of Christ. We'll look at it from different angles. I, I wanted to cover with our church family how forgiveness comes through the cross of Christ. And, and today, we're looking at three related but somewhat different aspects of Christ's death. Here are the three points. Number one, 
on the cross, Jesus canceled the certificate of debt against us. That's the first text. Let me read it again. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. That's what he did. By, this is how he did it, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So the important phrase is, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. It all depends on how you think of the law of God. The broken law of God isn't an idle thing and it isn't a silent thing. It has, it has its roots in, in the character, the holy character of God himself. And so the law doesn't just sit meekly by when its decrees are ignored or broken or not lived up to. The law is, is uh, an accurate, passionate record keeper. And what it records is Don Horbin's debt to the law's unsatisfied demands. Okay? That's the record he's talking about. Put your name there. Don Horbin's, the record of Don Horbin's debt to the law's unsatisfied demands. Now, I would submit to you that we're really not used to even thinking of guilt in those terms anymore. Our age is far more therapeutic, and it's, and it's used to measuring personal guilt by guilt feelings. Paul isn't talking about our feelings of guilt at all. There are sinners who, who get to the place, Romans 1, where, where God sort of gives them over to that kind of mind. There are all sorts of very sinful people who don't feel wicked at all. But they aren't less wicked for that. They're more wicked for that. Paul says our, our problem isn't our feelings of guilt. We know that feelings of guilt come and go. You can, have in, you can have in a room like this, you can have people who will feel guilty about something and another person who wouldn't feel guilty about doing the very same thing. But that doesn't mean we have different standards of holiness. It just means we have different levels of awareness. Some people very sensitive. Some people not sensitive at all. So, so Paul says our problem isn't our feelings of guilt. Our problem is... Our record of guilt. It's, it's something external to us. It doesn't hinge on whether or not we feel the weight of it. So, so notice how in, in that text, Paul puts my guilt before the broken law of God. He puts it in, in these legal, official terms. Canceling the record of debt. Maybe you have a mortgage. A certificate of debt on my house. They keep it at the bank. And it's a record of my debt. The bank doesn't care whether I feel like I owe them money or not. 
Next time you think nobody cares whether you're dead or alive, try missing a mortgage payment. If I owe the bank money, my feelings of debt are of no concern to them. Makes no difference. The record of what I owe, it just stands on its own. And that's the way it is with my guilt before the law of God. I'm also, I'm also not talking, when I talk about this record of guilt, I'm not talking here about the results of our sins. We all know sin brings pain, brings misery, sometimes it brings loneliness, breakdown in relationships, dysfunctionality in different levels in our personal and social experiences in this world, and God's very gracious, capable, merciful, willing to restore and rebuild much of this according to his mercy. But that's not what Paul's writing about. He's not writing about my feelings of guilt at all, and he's not talking about the results of my sin at all when he talks about this record of guilt that we all carry before the law of God. It's not the effects of our sin he's talking about. It's the guilt of our sin. The guilt of our sin before a broken law that represents the character of a holy God. This is the part of sin that our therapeutic age and therapeutic church doesn't talk about as much anymore. God will one day restore all of this created realm. Make all things new. But that's a different issue from counseling the debt of our sin before the law of God. There are two ways. Two ways of dealing with this record, this debt of sin. You can either balance the debt of sin or you can cancel the debt of sin. Almost all religions try this one. Almost all religions try to balance the debt of sin. It's a process as old as religion itself. I mean, people know perfectly well they aren't perfect. But they all know that they, they do some, perhaps even many, good things. And, and the good deeds, the good deeds are, are pictured as piled up on the opposite side of the balance. My transgressions over here, you know how a balance works. My good deeds over here. And when you get enough of these good works, offer enough sacrifices, say enough prayers, give enough alms, uh, then that piles up and a balance goes like this. There's more weight over here. Your good deeds out, the, outweigh these, these bad ones and it tips the scale in your favor. And God treats as righteous those whose good deeds tip the scales. This is the religion of Judaism. It's the religion of Islam. Much of Roman Catholicism with its doctrine of purgatory, the removal of sin by acts of suffering and penance. It's true of Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and a host of others. And it's fatally flawed for two important reasons. Two important reasons why trying to balance the record of debt won't work. Reason number one. Apart from faith in Christ Jesus, my good deeds never get put on the opposite side of the scale 
from my sin. That's the myth. The myth that you can put the good works on this side of the balance and you can tip the scales in your favor. Christianity is the only religion that tells you when you do good deeds apart from faith in Christ, they don't get put on this side of the scale. They get put on this side. They get put on the sin side. It doesn't help you. This is one of the most important things you can learn about Christian righteousness. The Bible says, Romans 14, 23, whatever is not of faith is sin. And Paul means that whatever is not rooted in faith in Christ Jesus is sin. Every action, every deed, in order to have moral worth before God must stem from faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. So the good works are the fruit of faith in Christ, not the root. Now, just follow this through for a minute. Whenever my works don't stem from trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, then what I'm doing is I'm placing my confidence, my trust, I'm placing my trust in my works to satisfy God. That's what I'm doing. I'm putting them over here to tip the scales in my favor. I do a lot of good things. And whenever I place my trust in my works, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, I make an idol of my own good deeds. And idolatry is always sinful in the eyes of God. This is true even if the works themselves are benevolent, kind, compassionate, What a myth this is. Widely held, even among non-thinking Christian people. Serving meals in a soup kitchen to the poor. Donating time at a local hospital or crisis pregnancy center. Counseling at a youth camp for runaway teens. Whatever it might be. My righteousness, that's the good stuff I do, is, according to the Bible, filthy rags. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ. When I trust in my good works to balance my debt, I make an idol of my works, and my debt is greater, not less. Everybody see that? Which is why they're called dead works. It doesn't mean that they don't benefit the people I help. Give money to the poor clothing fund. It doesn't mean they don't do any good here. What it means is, in terms of spiritual life, they're dead before God. You, you can't get to him with these things. So you see the folly of trying to balance your transgressions with works of righteousness. Apart from faith in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord All your deeds, good and bad, get piled on the very same side of the scales. Because whenever personal works are used as a replacement for trust in Jesus Christ, they are dead works. There's no hope for salvation in those things. So I said there were two approaches to canceling this certificate of debt. Our actual guilt, the record of guilt. One is balancing. The other is Canceling. This is what you see. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by, what's the next word? Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Hear it and know it to the depths of your heart. God cancels sin. He never balances them, which is very good for us. God cancels sin. He never balances them. It's the record of our guilt. I said the second thing is the condemnation that was taken away. That's point number two. On the cross, Jesus Christ took away the condemnation of our sin. Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died... More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The, the logic here is the condemnation of our sin is removed just as surely as Jesus died and rose. That's the logic of this verse. And, and the truth, this truth of our condemnation being erased, it, it grows out of that last point Because our debt was canceled in Christ. Our actual debt. Not just our feelings. Or the effects of our sin upon our circumstances. But the actual debt itself. Was canceled. Then if that's true. Then there is no condemnation that can stand against us. The bank can't take the mortgage payment when my house is paid for. That's the logic of the verse. Now, there still might be times when, you know, due to the weakness of our own faith, sometimes we are, our spirits are tied to our physical beings, and, and sometimes just because of present circumstances and, and weakness and fatigue and discouragement, certainly we're all in-season, out-of-season creatures. Times we still feel condemned. The world sometimes condemns us. Friends can come against us. We know from the scriptures there will come times of ridicule, even persecution. And so the apostle doesn't mean that there never will come times when others press us with their condemnation of us. That can happen. The point of the text is there is no condemnation now that can stand before God against us. So that, so that Christ has canceled our debt. And because God is truly just, he will never require payment for sins twice. Just as surely as Jesus died, condemnation, condemnation is gone. I love the way that verse wraps up with Christ interceding for us. We have a high priest who sympathizes with us. I never forget the day I, I remember reading. It's an old, old author. Nobody here would know from him. No one would know him at all. But I still remember reading an old author who talked about that sympathetic high priest, and he, he made the point. This is 20 years ago. That means Jesus always feels with us. He never feels against us. That's what sympathy is, right? A sympathetic high priest. Condemnation. Condemnation. The record of our guilt 
before the broken law, the condemnation that comes. And the third thing that the cross deals with is the cleansing of conscience of the sinner. That third text, Hebrews 9, there's an important difference between the way sinners were cleansed in the Old Testament and the way they are cleansed ever since the death of Jesus on the cross. Look at it again. Hebrews 9, 13, 14, 15. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, purify our conscience from dead works. Remember those good deeds I talked about before? You'd be amazed how many people feel, they feel the weight of their own sin. Their conscience speaks against them and there's this frantic scramble, I need to do some good things. Now Christians should be full of good works, but the good work shouldn't be to answer a guilty conscience. The good work should be the overflow of gratitude and thankfulness and a transformed heart. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred, the death of Jesus, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Wait a minute. A death has occurred that has redeemed them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What about all the blood of, in verse 13, the blood of uh, goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled... I thought that cleansed them. No, it didn't. Never did. The whole point of these words is the blood of Christ cleanses much more than the blood of goats and bulls. But how is the cleansing since the cross different. What does the blood of Jesus do that the blood of goats and bulls did not? That's the question we need to answer. And the text says that the blood of Christ cleanses the conscience. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer only dealt with the outward ceremonial cleansing of the sinner. They looked forward to a work that wasn't finished yet because Jesus hadn't come and died. So this is what the text means when it talks about the cleansing of the flesh. The picture is the, the, the outside. They're talking about a kind of cleansing that while it was commanded by God and regarded by God for that era temporarily as setting aside their guilt and their sin, but it only reached the outside. That's the point of that reference, the flesh. It never did reach the conscience. It never did reach the heart. It never could. So in the Old Testament, God only covered the sins of the sinner. The sinner's guilt was overlooked by God when the sacrifice is offered, but this never changed the heart of the sinner. And, and the sinner's conscience knew that his heart hadn't been transformed. And the best place to see that in the text is Hebrews 10, 3 and 4, 
speaking of all these sacrifices and the blood of bulls and goats, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. That's the phrase. Not the removal. There's two R words. Not the removal of sins. A reminder of sins. Every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so, and so this is this huge problem. All these Old Testament sinners would come over and over again, bringing the animal, the best unblemished animal they could find, bring it to the priest, bring it to the temple for sacrifice. And they would bring it over and over and over and over again. And even as they brought it the year later, they knew again that there was no way under heaven that the blood of animals could atone for their sin. They knew they were still sinners. They felt the weight of those repeated failures. They felt the guilt in their own conscience. They knew this wasn't adequate payment for transgression, not if there's a real God, not if he's holy. They knew animal sacrifices left human sin untouched. They knew it. Only in Christ is sin truly canceled out. And here's the reason. Only in Christ is there truly adequate ransom. More than adequate ransom for my sin. You, you, you need redemption. Redemption does not work without the Trinity. The Trinity is not a doctrine you can just sort of remove from Christianity and still have Christianity left. It disappears. The whole thing crumbles. Only Jesus, God the Son, God incarnate, became fully one of us. And he entered the battle against sin on our terms. Sin is truly atoned for because Jesus was truly one of us the way no bull or goat ever could be. And the conscience is cleansed for this reason. God the Son, human flesh, fully human, fully God. And as he lives life on this earth, he lives it Absolutely sinlessly. And I am in Christ. That's what Paul says. And so through Christ's death on the cross, there is perfect payment. Not the blood of a bull or a goat. God the Son paying for sin on our terms, from our end of the stick, with an absolutely sinless life. Which is why, of course, death couldn't hold him. Death comes from sin. The conscience is cleansed because we know that there is a genuine establishing of righteousness in the man, Christ Jesus. 
So this is why we glory in the cross. This is why the cross works. It works because in it, God cancels the certificate of our actual guilt. The reason he can do that and still be just is because the ransom paid on the cross was fulfilled by one who never broke any law at all, ever. The cross works because in it, no condemnation can stand against us before the throne of God because Christ rose and intercedes on our behalf. I don't stand in my righteousness, praise God. And the cross works because it has the power to inwardly cleanse the conscience of this previously futile system of religious discipline and exercise to earn God's favor. So the hymn writer knew more than many when he prayed, Jesus, keep me near the cross. And the one who penned those now famous words already knew he was saved. That wasn't the issue. This wasn't what his prayer was about at all. He wanted the Spirit of God to, in ever-increasing measure, keep the truths of the cross, the power, the influence, the impact, keep it flourishing in his mind and in his heart. That's good praying. So don't just look at the cross and say, it's just great to be forgiven. I mean, do rejoice in forgiveness. But know that that actual record of your real guilt was hammered up there and done away with. Know that there can be no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because he fulfilled the law perfectly. And know that the conscience is cleansed from somehow trying to earn God's favor by just doing enough good things. And you find a a peace and a rest the more you mentally work at understanding the magnificence of the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't ever get tired of it. We just don't have anything else to celebrate. Everyone said? Let's pray.